Welcome listeners, one and all, welcome to Regency Rumours, the podcast where a British-American couple discuss Bridgerton, the Netflix Regency show. I'm Jordan. And I'm Kayla. And I had something else to say at the beginning of this, but we have breaking news. We have sad, terrible, breaking news. Do you know what that news is? Do you check our Facebook page? Yeah, the Duke's not in it next season. Sorry, wait, no, the Duke. Yeah. It's not Duke. So it's something that you say. Duke. It is Duke. It's not Duke. It's Duke. It's not Duke. It's the Duke. That would be like Joker. Duke. Nope. It's, it's the Duke. It's the Duke. Anyways, it's not the Duke. It is the Duke. Oh my goodness. Anyways, Reggae oh no. Jean Page. He's not in it. Can I finish what I'm saying? This is devastating no, for it's plenty not. of us. It isn't. In fact, I saw, I even saw my cousin post about this on Facebook. She said something about what's the point in watching it if the main man isn't there. And I'm like, well, he's not even in season two, or at least he shouldn't be. Their story's over. Move on. Wow. You're not going to keep a lot of listeners around with your attitude. Do you want to say you're sorry? No. Say you're sorry. <laughs> Lo siento. No, I... I'm going to be honest, like, I I feel like having read the books and everything, I get the point of the books, right? Every, every one of the books is a new love story. It's a new main character. And it makes sense that the show is based on that. I know that the show deviates a lot from the books so far from the from the first book. And there's a lot of things that are added and characters that are added and stuff like that. But I think at the same time, you know, there's no point to continue on this happy marriage over and over and over again, really, in these next chapters where other love stories are going to be focused on. And I think that I'm okay with him kind of stepping away and it being Anthony's time. And after Anthony, hopefully it'll be Eloise. And after Eloise, you know, hopefully it'll be Colin or Penelope or, you know, one of the other characters we've not met yet and that's that's what's important is who's the main character and then the lives around them am i a bit disappointed that he's not going to be featured in some way that he's not going to like come back and occasionally come around and say like oh here's what you should do or because he's anthony's friend consult him on anthony's new love life or something like i could see he could come for a day of shooting to do something like that so i am i'm personally surprised he's not decided to come back for like one or two days of shooting for something small like that no not at all i'm i'm not surprised because he doesn't want to be typecast he doesn't want to be stuck with this role forever. I'm presuming. Why else would he not yeah. take? Why would he not take it? Either they didn't give him enough money because they were like, "Well, no, you're you're not going to be in it that much." And he goes, "Well, it doesn't matter. I'm still I'm a huge draw for the fans, so give me more money." And they're like, "No." So then he's like, "Bye." Or it's a case of, "Well, no. To be honest, I don't want to be this character forever, and I don't want that to be the only thing I'm known for because I've now had my big break and people know who I am." So either he's gotten a job offer for something else and he's happy to go do that. Or he just, he really doesn't want to be stuck into this role forever. Also, by the way, I would just like to point out that you've gone completely off script. And I had notes about this way later down the line. So you completely... About what? You put... About reggae John Page. Oh, well, we can talk about it again. You're putting the cart before the horse. It's because this is breaking news. And you do breaking news at the top of the hour. That's how that works, babe. What do they say in the corporate world? I've been seeing those TikToks. 
We can shelf this for now. We can circle back. <laughs> let's circle, circle back. back. Oh, awful, awful. Anyway. So let's go to episode eight for now. We will come back to uh, this breaking news. I just want to say that at episode eight, you would you would think that we were kind of turning a corner, that we were going to see some resolution. And we do at some point. But at the beginning of this, Daphne and the Duke are as far away from each other as possible. Marina is in dire straits. And Penelope looks like she's going to cry at any given moment. And Anthony and Sienna just can't seem to keep their hands off each other. And who is excited to recap this mess of an episode? Yippee. I'm going to be honest. I liked it more when there was this will they, won't they with Daphne and Simon. The kind of drama right now is stressing me out. I mean, the first four episodes are way more lighthearted than this. Yeah, for sure. I get that there are sexy scenes in here, but I just feel like the art of the chase is more powerful plot-wise. I don't know what it is with me, but I'm I'm not someone who's in the camp of needing to know what's happen what happens with people after they get together in a romance. Like I want to know if they're happy and that they never break up. The end. I'm not necessarily someone who cares to see Simon and Daphne's story after this. That's kind of what I was just saying before. Mm -hmm. Like, I would love for them to make a brief appearance and to show they're happy and raising kids. And like I said, the Duke to come and give some advice, maybe, which he's not now. But what do you think? Well, I mean, so uh, it it is interesting because in fantasy and sci-fi, when the characters are in a romance, it's usually either way more long term or it's a plot device to show how badly the main character has it. So usually because their significant other is killed off. So when you're reading books where there's a build-up and then like, yay, they're together and done, like that's that's the kind of thing that you you typically enjoy. Like I'm I'm more used to stories that are like build-up, ooh, yay, happy, and then now devastatingly terrible consequence of being in love. <laughs> Which, you know, sometimes is a bit um, distressing. Sometimes it's fine they get back together or whatever it is but usually you know fantasy and sci-fi authors they tend to use relationships as character building (laughs) for lack of a better term but kind of like hey this is a horrible thing that's happened to you now how are you going to get over it yeah um or the build-up is for like a very long time over a trilogy i'm more into the trilogies and you're more into the one-offs so it's interesting that you say that about uh, daphne and simon because of the whole spoiler about season two thing that you posted in facebook the other day and about simon not returning but we do know that phoebe dinover is coming back yeah so it's like now they're they're gonna have to contrive a plot where simon's off doing something and she's back in town to be fair i'm pretty sure they do that in the book anyways they kind of have her come in i'm not sure for who but they have her come in in one of the books and give somebody advice i don't remember who it is but yeah, I know, but but it's still it's it's going to be weird enough where like she'll she'll come swanning in, giving advice. They're either going to completely ignore it, which would be weird, or they're going to be like, "Oh yeah, Simon's uh, off doing dukely things." <laughs> but we are so happy. We're apart, but we're really happy. Yeah, because like they they start off and they're like, "Yeah, we're never going to be apart." Yeah. <laughs> Right now we're going to be apart, and now by episode eight they're like we don't even want to be in the same room together. And then yeah, but then season two and onwards. Yeah. So I mean, I think I prefer my stories where the characters get together and they stay together. The trend of fantasy authors having their main character partners killed off really hurts my heart. So it's yeah. um, I really I don't weather the storm with that kind of stuff so much, which is. Also, why I'm happy for this to be deviating from like Grey's Anatomy, because if you think of Grey's Anatomy and the the multiple, like the people who stay on the show and then the people who leave, like the people who stay, 
they can go through like three or four partners in this show because they have their partner killed off. And then that person in the show wants to leave. And then they have their partner killed off. And so like, I just like this a lot better than like these people going on and having multiple partners. And you're like, this is the one for them. Oh no, they've died. This is the one for them. No, no, they've died in a plane crash. Like I do think that's why in some ways, Austin's story, Austin's stories are so powerful and addicting is because like they have that ending they end once the couple gets together. And I think it's interesting to see a show take a Regency couple past marriage like this and see what happens with them. I've said that before, but in some ways the the past two episodes have just been getting me down. I, I want to go back to that feeling that I had when they were misunderstanding each other and annoyed with one another. And we were like, ah, oh, will they get together or not? Here they are in the shrubbery. I think there's something like so powerful in that back and forth that once a couple is together in romances, it's hard to recreate that. I think it's why in TV shows, they really dangle the carrot when it comes to couples because they know that in a lot of ways, it is what people really want to find out. I think with crime shows such as Castle, Bones, Strike, they wait to get the couple together for such a long time. Because yes, the crime is really good, but it's this long-term couple story that I think really drives the story ahead and keeps people hooked. So even in movies like Twilight or shows like Outlander, like the reason why Outlander can last so long is because they keep having a formula for this couple to not be together. Or they switch to other romances in the same world. Otherwise, us just watching a happy couple bang in castles in Scotland would just get boring after a while. It would. There needs to be some sort of conflict, and the most powerful one in my mind is when a couple hasn't gotten together yet, and there's all this tension and miscommunication and feelings under the surface. So two people who have no idea if one person feels the same or not, like that's what's powerful to me. So for Bridgerton, I just couldn't keep going on and on with Daphne and Simon. I just want them to be happy and, you know... I guess Daphne come back occasionally and help with the other couples. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. It is a powerful storytelling tool for TV makers because, like you said, it just brings people back to the TV set night after night. Um, obviously, we're we're getting a little bit away from the the weekly get the numbers type thing, and it's more about how many people tune in over the course of a month or two um, to a, a show that's on Netflix or something. But I do have to say that I really don't like it when there's misunderstandings between characters, though, because it's so contrived every single time it's usually done in a way that doesn't make sense in a real conversation and i can't think of any examples which is a good one me but it i think it's so frustrating when it's like wait he he meant this when he said that or he did this thing because i overheard two seconds of a conversation and now i'm gonna hate him forever and and it's like it's so like in an in a real situation if you misheard five to ten seconds of a conversation where it sounds like the person that you're you're falling in love with has just said that they hate you you would you would storm in there and go, excuse me, what did you just say? And you'd sort it out there and then. Yeah. But characters don't do that because that would be boring. Especially in period dramas. There's one, and I want you to watch this one so I, I won't tell you what it is, but there's one, it's a mini series. The guy sees the girl with another man, basically. And he spends like four episodes and they have these like spats back and forth where he's like, I saw you with a man. And she's like, I'm not telling you anything. You know, back and forth. Like... It turns out it's her brother. She could have just said it was Oh, that's my so stupid. I hate that. I absolutely <laughs> hate that. So there's this TikTok going around, and I think it's like, you know, what is the sexiest scene that you've seen on television? 
or in movies. And it's literally that scene in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice where Darcy helps Elizabeth up into the carriage. Do you know which one I'm talking about at all? I do, yeah. Okay. And as he walks away, he flexes his hand as if touching her hand had this profound effect on him. And I just love the way that Joe Wright puts in details like that because it sticks in your brain. And I know a lot of other Austin fans, they really like that. And that imagery of something so subtle that affects Darcy in that way. And I'll be honest, I think in a lot of ways that is more powerful than these over-the-top sex scenes. Like, please don't come at me. But that back and forth that makes it tantalizing. I mean, even you got hooked on Will They Won't They a few weeks back. Yeah. Yeah, so I can just just kind of go back to the hand thing. Like that's it's a really cool thing, and it's that old writing adage: show don't tell at work. It's visual storytelling at its finest. So I definitely agree. Um, and no, I, I disagree. I wasn't hooked on will they, won't they? Mm-hmm. Because it was blatantly obvious from day one that they will. <laughs> yes, but I mean, every Hallmark movie knows that they will, but you still get enticed of like, when is it going to happen? Yeah. Don't even look at me no. that way. You were so attached to that book. I couldn't get your eyes off that book for two weeks. Book. Yeah, it was a book. The fantasy you were reading. That's what I was talking about. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about Bridgerton. No, I was saying you were oh. hooked on a will they, won't they a couple weeks back. And I meant the book that you were reading. That, oh. that Victorian fantasy. I can't remember the name of it, but you were hooked on that. And I think a part of that was the couple getting together. Admit it. Admit it. I don't I admit don't know. Admit it, please admit it. So listen, listen, listen. The reason why in that particular case, and yeah, it was a bit more enticing, is because it wasn't a romance. It was it was a romantic subplot in a fantasy novel. Fine, but you were hooked on knowing whether or not they got together. Admit it. I was pretty sure that they would. But you know Admit it. Uh, yeah, I'll admit it. Yes. But but I think sometimes fantasy authors and sci-fi authors, like I was saying before, can be much more liberal in the resolutions that they give their their romantic subplots. Sometimes they honestly go down in flames. And awful, though. <laughs> no, I know, but like I mean, think of Game of Thrones. Yeah. Right? No. Yeah, that's true. Something about something about the fantasy or the science fiction books where, and the only reason I keep saying that, by the way, is because that's what I'm reading. It's not. It probably happens in other genres, but I'm saying because the focus of the book isn't the relationship, it's much more enticing and it's much more like, ooh, maybe they won't. Because in a romance, it's always like, well, they're going to. So you're saying it's not as predictable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I got you. Um, Yeah, just sum up everything I said in a word. There you go. (laughs) Um, Oh, do tell our listeners what the Victorian books that you were reading were because they might be interested it was a a duology two books which was interesting spellbreaker and spellmaker by charlie l n holmberg but um no yeah really interesting they are victorian fantasy basically set in an alternate history uh london where magic exists i won't tell you much more if you're interested in fantasy at all check it out uh, but we'll it is put it in the show notes yeah it's 1885 and slightly onwards that it's, so it's a little it's well it's a bit later than bridgerton but it's not often that our like worlds collide so i'm going to read that as well i think because you liked it and i love the victorian period and there's a lot of people that read Regency stuff that also like victorian fiction so yeah it's a good good suggestion so anyways my point is that bridgerton has been awesome and it's been cool to see daphne and simon married but now that they are, we're not seeing like this passionate, silent 
tension back and forth. And we're just seeing two boring married people in a tiff. Are you saying that married people are boring? Uh, are we boring? I mean, we're sitting here recording a podcast on a Saturday night and haven't left our apartment in six months, so... There's a pandemic. <laughs> be honest, if there was a pandemic, would we be somewhere else on a Saturday night by 11 o'clock? Obviously not, because we're not hoodlums. <laughs> After the rain, the last episode of Bridgerton season one. Thank you to all our listeners who have joined in our journey of Regency rumors. We can't believe how many people have listened to the podcast, have joined the Facebook group and joined in our discussions and emailed us suggestions and ideas. We really feel excited about where the podcast is going. If you haven't yet, join us on that Facebook group, which um, allows you to post Bridgerton-related videos or articles, uh, share your frustrations about the Featheringtons, or discuss historical topics with us. The Facebook group is facebook.com forward slash Regency Rumours, rumours with a U. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts and you've enjoyed our first season of Regency Rumours, please leave a review. It would really help us being viewed and with the algorithms, and it means that we can keep doing these recaps in the future. So thank you so much. Now on to the recap. So at the beginning, rain, glorious rain, is pouring in at the beginning of our final episode. No more sunshine in Bridgerton land. It is raining at last. We see a bee buzzing around, which is apparently foretelling, and it's probably going to come into play more in the following seasons, but for now, it is simply a detail that they've added to the story. The Duke and Duchess are getting their painting made, but of course, because they are quarreling, their idyllic painting is nothing but a facade. The Duke and Duchess have decided to hold a ball as their last commitment in society as a couple. Over at the Featheringtons, Marina is packing to get out of there. She wants to go home, she tells Penelope. She thinks she is without child now. Not sure she knows how that works. But just as she is packing, a carriage pulls up and a man steps out who Marina recognizes. Who could it be? So before we get into some really interesting stuff, I just want to mention that the whole bee motif um, is something that I saw an article about recently or maybe a video popped up or something. Apparently they're hidden all over the place, like in fabric designs and everything. And it's the sort of thing that you have to freeze every frame, frame to notice. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, but the thing is, I saw the headline of the article and I did my thing where I was like, well, I don't really want to know the behind the scenes stuff, so I skipped it. <laughs> so I didn't actually read the details. But I saw a picture where it was um, Colin's waistcoat or his cravat or something and no it, way. and it, yeah and when you zoom in it had like a bee or something and then someone kind of cute someone else's fabric or something and yeah so anyway apparently bees really uh, really cool detail well the books give the spoilers well, well, well don't no i'm not it. gonna say it. i'm just okay. saying that um yeah the book can give away the spoiler but it's something that i'm guessing they'll they'll weave through okay sure so i want to jump right in here with some history um at the beginning and talk about paintings in the regency period so in older periods it was mostly just the royals who could afford these grand like huge paintings the ones that you see in these big halls um, of their predominant members of the family so everyone else generally couldn't afford paintings or could just get like smaller ones small miniature paintings of their loved ones so by the regency period however portraits were far more accessible to the upper class and even the middle class with 
upper class members of society having these large elaborate paintings of themselves done in the mid 1700s early 1800s that's why when you see some of those famous paintings of like the founding fathers that are bigger than your whole body you may think they are for more official reasons in dc but really at the time a lot of these portrait paintings were meant to show wealth and power which is why people would hold certain objects and paintings such as maps, books, skulls. Uh, they'll have globes in the background or scrolls. So this is to show status or a person's professions. For women, they'd often wear their most decorated or elaborate garments. So this was a time when the art world was at a high. Like we were talking about in a previous episode about people going to art galleries, that was a massive thing in the time period. There used to be rooms and rooms filled with artwork that people would go and visit, and the walls would be absolutely covered in paintings for people to see. There's a movie called Mr. Turner that really shows the state of the art world at the time. He was a contemporary of Jane Austen's, and he was famous for his landscapes and marine paintings. It shows you galleries and artists' workrooms and how important art was at the time, not just as people going to museums or art enthusiasts, but I think it was far more popular to the general public at the time than it is today because there weren't things like television or film. So a lot of people really partook in the art, art world and would know some of the more famous painters. People in high society could afford to hire these painters to do their portraits and a price would be negotiated on the size of the portrait and how much the body would be shown. So the cheapest price would be just your head and the highest price would be your entire body. So for Daphne and Simon, I am sure their portrait cost quite a pretty penny. In this period, you were seen as a more successful and more revered painter if you painted historical scenes or war depictions, but not everyone got those commissions and those were not often the highest paying commissions. It was portrait paintings from the elite that would garner the most money. So a lot of these painters would just be skilled at both or kind of get stuck in the, the portrait world after a while. So anything extra such as backdrops or specific poses or like embellished garments would cost more money because it would be more difficult for the, the painter to paint. Because people tended to fidget, sittings would last no more than about an hour. Though if they were long term, sometimes painters would have a reader to entertain the sitter or sometimes even a musician, which I think could be quite fun. Sittings tended to be at the same time of day to catch similar lighting and because the painters used oil paint it would take a few days to dry so painters would have about two or three days in between to to do the paintings again with the sitter so for roles who were busy often the painter would do some of the base drawings in several different positions and then the bigger more elaborate paintings that took time they would base off those paintings that they drew before rather than having the sitter be in the same room at all times. So for the Prince Regent, there are several portraits of him painted by Thomas Lawrence, some of them which look about half finished in the face, but really they were just paintings that were made when the prince was present. And then Lawrence completed the bigger paintings elsewhere and had those as a reference. Today, it must be so much easier for painters to have photographs of people and then be able to paint from there. These life studies, as they were called, can be highly valuable as they're the closest things that we have to photography until that came about in the late 1800s. So it's an interesting thing that um, you mentioned that the maybe photographs would be easier to to paint from and stuff like that because 
the the class that we see Benedict take, those are life studies, right? And so the the reason why having someone in the room is a lot better for the artist is because you can see how the light falls and things. And if you move your head and you see where the shadows go and stuff, it's a lot easier to paint because you're seeing the 3D representation. A photograph, whilst it's useful as a reference, it isn't always like perfect because it's flat. Obviously, you've still got the perspective there, but it's why, you know, a lot of these painters of this particular time period, like Van Gogh and all those kinds of people, they're always depicted as like taking their easel out to the countryside and setting it up on top of a hill so that they can paint the landscape or whatever, um, rather than just going taking a quick sketch or whatever and then going back and painting it at the house because having that actual object in front of you just makes it a lot easier so not to say that we're actually painters <laughs> no um, and obviously like the the real life thing is going to be the best thing right like that's always going to be the best way to paint something but if you are a president or the queen or something you know the artist may do one or two sessions with you with you there in person but then they're probably also in this day and age going to take photographs and some of the sketches that they've done and they're probably going to put those together and then paint at their own leisure because if you are somebody like the president or the queen you're busy you don't have time to sit there for 20 hours you know well i mean these days you can take a photo of someone then turn it into something that looks like a painting so <laughs> what i'm sure there'd be loads of artists that would be very offended by that I mean, like, big, huge canvases of official paintings of, like, the royal family and stuff. Do they still do those? Like, I'm sure they I'm do. I'm sure they're just photographs now. Oh, I am moving on. So Seriously? No, seriously, I think they they probably... The president they doesn't, doesn't sit for a Are a you painting. joking? Every president, after they finish being president, they have their painting unveiled. So, like, when Obama was done with his presidency, he had his painting unveiled during Trump's presidency. And then the same for Bush. When Obama was in office, he invited Bush back to the White House because they had a painting of Bush that they put up in the White House. That's what you do. Every president has a painting painted of them, a big, huge canvas that then they put up, like, after their presidency is over. And they have a different right. artist. So, yes, people do still do paintings. People, I know people still do paintings. I can't believe you just said, oh, they take a photograph and then you, it can make it look like a painting. No, 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 no. You uncultured that's not swine. What, that's not what I meant. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying that for, like, the official portraits of people, like, you're going to take a photograph rather than do a, sit for a painting for hours if you're that busy. Of course, that's, well, that was my point from the beginning. So why did you have to go off on this tangent? Because that's where it's gone. <sighs> Anyways, so for landed families such as the Duke and Duchess of Hastings, there would normally be one big painting, which would have been done from life, and then the two of them sitting there. And then a lot of the times there would be variations of that done. So they would have had one big painting that would sit in the house in Cliveden, and then there would be one at their L London residence, and then there might be a few others that are commissioned uh, that would be sent to family and friends to remember them by, because obviously, you know, they didn't have social media and all the photographs that we take of ourselves today on our phones, and so you would want to make duplicates of a painting to be able to send, send to your family so that they can have them, you know, up in their house Which to be like, just, oh, I miss you. You Look just at painting. copy and paste it, right? I am over <laughs> you today. So the most expensive one would be the one drawn when they were there for the sitting, while the other ones would often be done by an artist's apprentice or assistant and would be valued at a much lower price. So it is interesting that while Daphne and Simon 
are clearly at odds with one another, they are still keen to establish themselves within society, having a large portrait painted of the two of them by what I assume was a master artist. It is clear that while their marriage could be in all sorts of disarray, it is still important that they are seen among the elite as having wealth and power as a unified unit. Nice. So, though I hate posing for photographs, I'm sure that doing it for hours with a, a painting sitting is even worse. So no, well, thank you. Good, you can just have your photograph and go on Adobe and make it into a painting. I don't think it's that simple, but I, like I'm saying, that people can do have been doing really amazing stuff with like even AI and things lately about um, auto generating different types of artwork and stuff. It's genuinely fascinating the types of stuff that people are doing. I'm just pulling your chain, but I just think it's funny that I was I know, talking I... about like royal family paintings and you're like they probably just turned their photographs into a painting i was like no do they go on their no, computers no 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 i didn't say that they probably do that i said it's possible but i said that they probably just get a photograph these days like they might do like i'm the, not sure the cambridges they they don't release paintings of themselves they might in the actual residence though i mean like if you go maybe, to visit but, but what i'm saying is it's like buckingham palace maybe they've got an official painting i don't know I don't know. It's just, it's we so really much simpler to... to do a photograph for yeah. them. So it's, like, I don't know. I can't imagine f how busy they are. I'm sure the queen has paintings though. Obviously. But do you think Charles will have paintings? I'm sure you're like... Currently? I doubt it. That'd be interesting to find out if they still, if the royal family still do paintings. Like for the coronations, they will. So Surely. I mean, obviously we haven't had a coronation know. in a very long time. <laughs> I think it would be cool to continue on the, the tradition of paintings, even with photographs. But it will be interesting to see what they do in the future and how they take paintings of official people. Daphne and Violet are shopping. And Daphne tells her mother that she and the Duke are going to live apart because of Simon's grudge against his father. Right then, the Featheringtons come up to confront them yet again, which is kind of awkward. Lady Featherington tells Violet that her girls are in tears because they were not invited to the ball. Oh, please. Violet goes to say something back, but Daphne intercedes and invites all of the girls to the ball. Portia's servants inform her that a man has come to their house, a Mr. Crane, to which Daphne responds excitedly, as she is hopeful that this is Marina's lover. When they arrive at the Featherington abode, they find that it is not George, but his brother Philip who has come calling. He is bearing bad news, however. His brother died on the battlefield several weeks back. As some sort of solace, Marina finds out that George wrote to her telling her that he did love her and that he did want to be with her, but he died before the letter was sent. She thanks Daphne for her efforts, because without her inquiries, Marina would never have known about George's fate, and it seems neither would Philip. I have known about Marina. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Over at Madame Delacroix's, Eloise stops by the store uh, trying to figure out if she is Lady Whistledown. Based on their conversation, Eloise is convinced that she is indeed Whistledown, whilst Madame Delacroix is only trying to hide her tryst with Benedict. Oh my. So I've got no idea how long Daphne and Simon have been married. It can't be more than a minute. I feel like if you were Violet and your daughter was like, yeah, we're just gonna live apart, you'd be like, what now? Like, you've only been married a couple weeks. Like, what on earth could have happened that was so bad that you were essentially going to separate in a couple of weeks? So we've heard of couples getting together and then getting in big fights after being together for like two or three weeks. I'm always like, what do, what do you have to fight about in, in three weeks time? You should still be getting to know each other. Like, now granted, 
you know, kids are a big issue. It is something that should be settled between a couple before they get married because it can be a huge issue for years once you're married if one of you wants kids and one of you doesn't. But I know Daphne and Simon were in this kind of weird position when it comes to this, but it does seem like they should still be in this stage of getting to know each other and asking a million questions about each other, especially since they can't have a modern relationship where they date for several years. Like, they've got to do all that inquisitive stuff while they're married so this shouldn't be the time when the two of them are like manipulating each other like forcing things on each other and secrets like this this should be when they're like talking and having fun and you know saying like this is my favorite thing what's your favorite thing in the world so I don't understand why Daphne didn't cotton on before now that she knew so little about Simon and surely like that was weird it really just seemed like the two of them were just going at it for weeks they have a tiff about one issue and then all of a sudden it's all or nothing and now we just won't be with each other anymore it's very dramatic to me and it's these extreme ultimatums they should always be avoided they're never good I get that they're at an impasse here but after just a couple weeks of marriage and y'all can't talk a few things out and now you're already telling your mom you're broken up it's just ooh. Shoo, this is, uh, this is not the most mature path, I feel. Um, but sadly, however, it, it definitely does not seem as if there is marriage counseling in 1813. So it seems like the Duke and the Duchess are going to have to figure out their problems on their own. Um, yeah, I mean, we've already talked about Daphne and Simon and our opinion of their, their relationship and their being a bit silly. So I want to talk about uh, something slightly different here. I want to kind of highlight a little bit about Sir Philip and Sir George. So we have Sir Philip coming back to tell us that George died in fighting, and I believe it's said in the south of Spain, and that's where his regiment was. So in 1813, Britain was at war with France, as was most of the continent. Uh, the Napoleonic Wars, as they're known, uh, had been raging since 1803. So Napoleon became the first consul, or the ruler, of France in 1799, and he inherited a broken realm of a republic in chaos. This was after the French Revolution, you see? So it's all a mess, and the royalty all had their heads chopped off. Oh my. <laughs> mm -hmm. So... To start off the Napoleonic Wars, Russia and Austria were kind of like, ooh, we can beat France because they're all messy. And Napoleon was like, no, boyos, I've got a super well-trained army, so we're going to beat you. And he did. Boyos? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought I, was, I would be a bit flippant. Um, I feel like Napoleon was probably a flippant man. Um, <laughs> Based on what we know of him. But no, I mean... You can you can almost think of the Napoleonic Wars as um, world wars. The the conflicts were so kind of large and they impacted so much of the world because obviously these were two, these were multiple colonial powers going at each other that they fought all across the world in in their different holdings and things. Um, and there isn't time for me to dive into learning literally everything about this period of time. And I don't know you know the ins and outs of like all the alliances and all that kind of stuff. These big wars are always so complex. They are layered with alliances and with deals and all that kind of stuff. So if you if you look at the belligerence list on Wikipedia, you can see that seven of the eight French client states, and a client state is usually 
um, kind of like a, a state that you've got control over, but you, you don't directly own. Seven of those eight client states were at one time a part of the coalition forces that were arrayed against France. So basically, all, all the other way around, like they started off client state and, and then eventually became part of the coalition forces. Because at the time, people were kind of seeing Napoleon as such like a, a monster in a way, because he was trying to take over the whole of the European continent that people were just like really worried. They didn't want him to do it and, and all of that kind of thing. I would also like to note here that the whole France surrenders all the time thing and the whole what colour is a French flag, it's all it's white. Um, it's, it's actually a very successful piece of propaganda against the French state. Napoleon was a fantastic general and succeeded in many battles. He's considered one of the greatest military commanders of all time and his wars and battles are still analysed today. It's also not true that he was a short man um he was average height of the time so you know the whole napoleon syndrome thing that we call for like small dogs and stuff yeah um that's again a piece of propaganda against the french um mm. because basically he was so successful that they had to kind of say they had to beat him in other ways obviously eventually britain did win <laughs> so we we beat him militarily as well so um george being off in the south of spain makes sense because up until 1808 spain was a french ally but this changed when Portugal, who is the longest-running ally of Britain, refused to stop trading with the British as per the French order, and Spain failed to maintain what was called the Continental System, which was the French effort to blockade and economically isolate and weaken the United Kingdom. So Napoleon basically stealthily invaded Spain. He sent troops into Spain, into the Iberian Peninsula, and said, uh, no, you need to enforce this blockade and all this kind of stuff. Um, so the French troops eventually occupied Madrid and they installed a client monarchy. So his brother, Joseph Napoleon Bonaparte, became Jose I of Spain. This led to many popular revolts, i.e. the people uh, revolted across the Iberian Peninsula, the landmass that Spain and Portugal reside on, and the British support of the Spanish and Portuguese rebellions expelled the French in 1814 after six years of fighting. So as we know, Bridgerton is set in 1813. This is still within the period of the uh, Spanish war against the French. And so that's where George would have been. And that's what he was doing, helping the longest running allies that Britain have ever had, which I think is pretty honourable, if you ask me. That's interesting. Thank you for letting us know. So it's Boxing Day. Well, not Boxing Day, but you know, the boxing match. Will is trying to negotiate with his wife about fighting or taking the deal. He wants to build a future for his family. Lord Featherington talks to some bad, scary men and puts all of his money and the deed to his house on a bet against Will, which means Will has to throw the match. This seems like a really smart idea. So at the Featheringtons, uh, Philip is still hanging around and wants to ask Marina to marry him. He says that he should be doing his duty by marrying Marina. Marina refuses because she does not know him and does not love him. Philip says that George would have wanted Marina to be looked after. She still refuses and asks him to leave. Marina thinks because she is no longer pregnant that she doesn't have to go along with any more schemes. Back at the boxing ring, Will is fighting hard, while Anthony and Sienna who have spotted one another at this match, are busy doing other things hard. It doesn't take long for Will to give in easily, however, and forfeit the match by falling over. We aren't convinced, and I don't think some of the crowd are either. I think we can see in Simon's eyes that he knows what his friend 
has been up to and i think also he's probably a bit disappointed oh yeah 100 percent. and we see that later as well don't we that he's disappointed and we obviously talked a lot about the boxing and fixing the matches last yeah. episode uh, so we won't go into that today but one thing that we can talk about here is this practice of taking the widow of your brother as your own wife and once once he's dead it's called a leveret ma- marriage i think it's leveret i don't think it's levi right i'm not sure yeah. it's not it's not based on levi as in the levites so it's leveret i i think so a pretty important custom in some cultures throughout history in fact most cultures throughout history patriarchal ones in particular it was an important method to protect women in societies where they had very few if any legal protections without a husband in islam leveret marriages are not forbidden but they are treated to be they are to be treated as an ordinary marriage and must have the women's consent in judaism a form of leveret marriage called yibam was practiced based on deuteronomy 25 and um, verses 5 to 10 which states that the brother of a man who died childless is permitted and encouraged to take up the wife of his brother, and the firstborn child shall bear the name of the deceased brother, so that his name may live on in Israel. However, if either party wished to refuse Yibam, they were both required to go through a ceremony known as Haliza, involving the symbolic act of renunciation of their right to perform this marriage. Jewish law has seen a gradual decline of Yibam in favour of Halaza to the point where most contemporary Jewish communities and in Israel by mandate of the chief rabbinate, Yibam is prohibited. It's worth noting that the Deuteronomy verse speaks of Halaza disfavourably, mentioning that the woman would spit at the man um, if he were to refuse Yibam and uh, to remove his shoe. Interesting. Yeah, and it, it specifically states that the man will be known as having had his shoe removed. I'm not really sure what the significance of that is. but I'm not sure either. Um, Henry VIII married his brother's widow. Um, who didn't he marry, though? <laughs> <laughs> because his elder brother, Arthur, the Prince of Wales at the time, obviously, was married to his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, for six months before his death. Catherine, whose name is commonly spelt with a C, despite the fact that she spelled and signed it with a K, maintained that her marriage to Arthur was not consummated in those six months. So Henry VII was adamant that he wanted an alliance between England and Spain, and so he obtained a papal dispensation to allow Catherine and Henry, who went on to become the eighth, to marry. Um, They didn't marry until Henry came to the throne in 1509, so Henry VIII, obviously. Sorry, lots of Henrys. He later sought an annulment for that marriage from the Pope, citing Leviticus 20.21. If a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an impurity. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. Which is ironic, considering that Catherine didn't really give Henry uh, the children that he wanted. She did give him a daughter, though. Yes. So he wasn't childless. He wasn't childless. But like in his mind, probably because it wasn't a son. Um, but she she had quite a few miscarriages and things. Very very sad. Quite a, quite a lot of issues there. Um, however, Henry VIII was refused, and thus the Church of England was born. So that's an example of somebody marrying their brother's wife that uh, really had catastrophic. Only because of Henry being a yes, bit bit yeah. of a cad. Yeah. Um, although apparently, as I was researching this, contemporaries of Henry VIII said that he was very loving to his wives until he no longer loved them and then he just completely cut them out of his life quite literally isn't that a thing of like narcissistic tendencies though that's it's like love bombing that love bombing thing and then all of a sudden like i don't want you anymore Hmm. i think that's as far as i know that's kind of a thing so i mean for people who are narcissists or sociopaths maybe i'm not sure yeah i mean henry the eighth was a huge had a huge impact on british uh, history law all sorts so i mean yeah 
if if anybody is going to be like a narcissist or like mm. slightly like like an egotist and that kind of thing it was probably him i mean i guess at least he respected his first wife enough not to behead her so there's that yeah um <laughs> yeah <laughs> so leveret marriages can be seen in many cultures around the world um for example the japanese had a custom of leveret marriage called aniyome ni nasu apologies for the pronunciation there during the meiji period which is um 1868 to 1912 somalia cameroon nigeria kenya and south sudan all practiced leveret marriages and potentially still do um scythia indonesia the kurds and goguryeo which is a kingdom korean kingdom all had forms of leveret marriages as well so this is something known the world over um, and these are only a few examples i didn't I think nowadays we see it as, or we can see it as kind of a strange thing or kind of like a taboo thing. But I know in in some cultures that it's still done in some communities. And especially during this time period, it would have kind of been seen as a woman being taken care of by the man she was, like her already, like her already family, basically. Yeah. I mean, with Maureen, it's a bit different because she's she wasn't married to him but i think like it's that it's that thing of like she was going to be having his child and so you know it was kind of keeping her within the fold of the family type thing yeah yeah i mean it's in some ways you can think of it as a purely patriarchal thing though where philip is doing it because his brother's child is there and it potentially is is a boy who's going to inherit and blah 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 yeah so it's it's not necessarily a, a super good thing for the women. But then again, either she's going to be single and not even widowed with a child or she can marry him and I don't know. So it's... I mean, I guess in some ways he could also not extend his charity at all and just be like, well, this is a illegitimate child. It's not my problem. And you and that child can just go off on the streets for all I care and I'll get a proper wife and I'll become, you know, yeah, the head of this estate or whatever that he has. So I guess in that way, like, it's good that he's doing this, but she, it doesn't give her a lot of choice and Was... a lot of freedom. And it, it it probably is weird for her to be like, oh, I'm marrying the guy I love's brother. Like, so it's so, hard, I, but. Was Philip the eldest? I don't actually know. I don't know. I got the impression that for some reason Philip was the eldest. And in that case, it would make it even more Worse. of... Like... Yeah. So, But then if George was the eldest, then it would make a bit more sense because it's the second brother stepping up. Anyway, never mind. We, we, we've spent a while talking about that now. At the Hastings, Daphne is going through the Duke's belongings. She's trying to find anything she can about her mysterious husband. Daphne finds unanswered letters from Simon to his father. Lady Danbury walks in and Daphne confronts her about it. She has no idea that Simon had a speech impediment because he never told her. The letters were to keep his father informed on his progress, but he never answered back. We're switching back and forth here a lot at this last episode. Um, we're back in the boxing arena again. Simon goes into Will's boxing booth to confront him about losing the match. He asks Will, what happened to your honor? Will answers, what is more honorable than taking care of one's family? Will tells Simon that he needed to do this for his family, but that Simon is not really mad at him. He's mad at his own situation in his own marriage. Lord Featherington comes home with a bag filled of money. He tells Portia that their problems are solved. <laughs> yeah. 
So you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. One of the things that is annoying in period dramas is these people that are so close together are reluctant to talk. I hate it. Yeah. So like in the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice, where Lizzie doesn't tell pretty much anyone of her relationship with Mr. Darcy and all the things that has happened. So everyone is all confused and stuff when she finally like accepts his proposal because they're like, what? Don't, don't you hate him? Like, what do you mean? And in Sense and Sensibility, Eleanor doesn't tell Marianne that uh, Mr. Ferris is engaged to Lucy Steele. Like, I get wanting to keep things private, but it does seem like these people are hurting themselves so much more by keeping things so quiet and not at least telling their closest family members or something. I mean, if Eleanor cannot tell Marianne, who is her closest person in life, about her situation with Mr. Ferris, then who can she tell? It's almost as if these British families, so sorry, but that they can't trust each other and no one even gets close enough to tell each other what's really going on so they just let the world crash around them with no support and they they stay silent i know for a fact there's been a couple of different period dramas that would move along a lot quicker or issues would have been resolved if the main character would just open up to to a parent a sibling or someone they're engaged to something i'm really struggling with how simon would have thought it was a good idea not to tell daphne about his struggles with his father I think having a speech impediment must be so hard and like good for him for for overcoming it like he wanted to. I'm not saying he's got to relive those memories or that he should be forced to talk any sooner than he is ready, but it just feels like he was willing to run his marriage completely into the ground before actually telling his wife what was going on with him. It's so much more destructive than just like talking about it. That happens so much in these dramas, and it can be so infuriating. I'm normally, like, yelling at the TV, just tell her. Tell her what you feel. Like, tell her what's going on. If Simon would have just been honest way earlier, they could learn how to communicate and not have to completely break up their marriage over something like this. I I do know, however, that it makes for better TV, so I get why they do it sometimes. But, like, with these period dramas, I do think these characters are so thick. Like, just... Communicate with the people that you love. Agreed. And like I said, I've already said that earlier. It's it's a trick to up the conflict. And it is not great for real relationships. And so it does it does worry me sometimes when um maybe not so much now, because the kind of stuff that people consume media wise is much more varied, but um if if these kinds of films and series are the only things that you're watching and you're like, oh, I solve problems by not talking about them. <laughs> I do think some teenagers probably watch stuff and internalize it and are just like, I just won't tell anyone. Yeah. And it's probably not good. They just think like, oh, the, the people that I'm watching on TV, they don't tell anybody. So why do I? And that's so destructive. But people on TV also don't say goodbye when they hang up the phone and nobody does that in real life. That's true. So, <laughs> but then again, kids these days, do they even call people? I don't know. We're just so old. Like, I don't know what's going on in the world around us. To be fair, I feel a bit awkward calling my sister because I know that she doesn't. She's at the age where she, she doesn't, doesn't. She doesn't yeah. prefer it. But then again, with my brother, I can call him on Discord and have a chat when we're like playing a game or something. Because that's not as weird. But if I just called him on the phone and was like, hey, do you want to chat? He'd be, I'm sure he'd find it weird. 
I think it's just, it could just be their age, but it also just could be the generation that they're growing up in where it's like, mm, don't call me, excuse well, me. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they made a, a joke about that in one of the Jump Street films. I don't know. Yeah, um, because obviously they're of the generation where you called everybody um, and they're going back to high school when everybody texts. And so he calls the girl and she's like, what? Why are you calling, you weirdo? But then it starts off a... Anyway, never mind. So... I am generalizing, but I will say it's definitely different in the U.S. I mean, in the U.K. than in the U.S. about expressing feelings and asking people out and that sort of thing. I've got no idea how people end up in relationships here because you're not a very straightforward people. So I don't know how people end up declaring their feelings. If we hadn't been friends beforehand, I've got no idea how we would have ended up together You've got your own secret language between you all where like niceties can actually mean something else. And I've never really managed to crack the code with that. So I've got no idea how you communicate. Like I, I just talk to people the way I know and I hope that it'll make it out okay. Yeah, I mean, other Americans have said the same thing to me. Um, I think it's one of those things that develops on island nations. Um, Japan is similar from what I've read and heard. Really? Yeah, like you tend not to pry so much and everyone is so on top of each other that you purposefully have to stay out of people's business. Like you, you intentionally turn your your head away kind of thing in a, in a way. So I think that's where some of this like non-straightforward communication comes from. Um, it's also back to like being polite and not saying what you actually think because it's too rude. So I'm reminded of that scene in Emma where she actually calls out the her friend, the the woman who never stops talking. Miss Bates. Okay. Um, and it's too on the nose and, and it's true and it ruins everybody's day because that's just not done here. You know? Yeah. Um, it, although it does depend. Sometimes mates will do it um, as part of the whole banter thing. But honestly, it's tiring and I, I don't like it. Um, but yeah, and like in an office, there's there's a meme that, or a joke, I guess, because it was before <laughs> memes were really a thing. But um, there's a thing that goes around online of um, translating um, office phrases in the the UK for oh, yeah. for non Brits, and it'll be something like um, uh, how you sign off your email can mean different things. And so there's a, there's a one there's a really popular one going around where you start off saying all the best. Jordan and then if somebody annoys you with their reply you just say best wishes or something and you, so you bring it down and then if they really annoy you you just say best um and and things like that and it's like um I can't I can't think of a, a, another example per my last email yes that's a perfect example per my last email is I know that you didn't read it so I'm I'm telling you this so that you look like an idiot is basically yeah. that's the subtext um and so anyway there's tons of those and i think in an office you you can't be too straightforward here or people will kind of hate you for it and i'm i'm sure that um i take a lot of that straightforwardness from from you and all the other americans in my life and i think it sometimes has frustrated my british colleagues um <laughs> once or twice i've kind of i've noticed that i've said something and people kind of go oh uh and i'm like oh oops <laughs> That was probably not a very British thing to do, but never mind. It's hard. I think it's hard to know the line. I think for me, especially on emails, I have a really hard time of knowing if somebody in an email is saying like, you really need to get this done when in the email, it's just like, oh, get that back to me when you can. So it's it's really hard for me that that kind of secret language that goes on in these emails. I can't 
read between the lines really so it's got to be so much hard harder in a romantic sense of like expressing feelings and being like hey i like you we should go out and so you know it's just it can be really frustrating i'm I'm sure so i i think i think the office stuff is probably changing a little bit where the whole world is becoming more globalized anyway yeah and you work with people that aren't just british in, in a lot of offices um you know these multinational spaces and so some of that is slowly eroding away anyway and i i i think it's horrible so i have a i have a policy of being as honest as possible and like being open about the fact if i don't know something like you know it's it's probably in some cases it makes me look silly or stupid if i don't know something but it would make me look way worse if i made a mistake and like you know a client noticed rather than just my team or something like that so i think it's changing but well i think that's for the best i think there's nothing wrong with being nice but i think that you can clarify what you need to say and be nice at the same time rather than talking in these riddles it's just not productive really and it doesn't do anyone any good yeah no totally agree i totally agree i think because with with the last year or so um there's a lot of like instant messaging communication in offices now um obviously with the work from home stuff that some of that has to disappear anyway so you're talking to your work colleagues almost the same way as you talk to your mates because it's it's through text and so you can't it's not always like dressed up in this super fancy language it's just like hey have you got a second like can can we have a chat about that instead of like hello can we set up a time for yeah, a meeting and that kind of a thing so hopefully we can all be more comfortable with each other in the world because it'd be nice to just be yourself so i will say at the end of the day some societies are better or worse at communication between family and friends but what is universal is gossiping watching bridgerton these people may not be able to express their feelings properly <laughs> but word sure does get around so people are able to talk about something and I'm Southern, so I I know a bit about gossiping and y'all might be a bit repressed with the people that you're close to, but boy, you can, you can gossip with the best of them. Yep. I mean, gossip is the, the most common physical manifestation of the human need for story. And I know that sounds a bit like wishy-washy and out there, but like, bear with me, I'm being serious. Humans are built on the need for storytelling. It is literally hardwired into our brains. It's what made us stop being hunter-gatherers and become farmers. We could pass down techniques that animals can't because we tell stories to one another. It's how we learn. So the average person might not think so, but we use stories literally every day of our lives. Hey, how's it going? Good, yeah, yeah, I had a great night's sleep, so I'm feeling all fresh today, and I've been watching a great show on telly. It is literally telling your friend a story of your day. A heavily truncated one, but a story nonetheless. And that desire to hear about what happened to so-and-so, or that girl back in high school, or Billy Bob from down the road, it's part of our desire to know more about the world around us, the people in our lives. It's, it's a survival mechanism, basically. But yeah, that's why fiction is so important. Random mini-tangent of the episode are done. No, I, I totally agree with you, and I think, like, in that sense, that's, you know, that's how Lady Whistledown, like, makes her money. That's that's it's where she, her bread and butter is. It's how the news media today makes their money. <laughs> well, there you go. So, no, it's, um, it's interesting. 
Well, this is where we're going to stop uh, this episode because we've been going on forever and we've decided to do this in a two part. So like uh, episode five, I think we did in two parts because there was just so much to talk about. And so we've decided now at um, episode eight that we're going to do this in two parts as well because we want to be able to talk about the reveal of Lady Whistledown and just the the ending of this show and what happens to Simon and Daphne and Marina and everyone. And so everybody dies. Oh, please. So yeah, we're going to, we're going to have a a final recap of Bridgerton coming next week. So please do, do stay tuned and remember that we're uploading on Mondays nowadays. So every Monday you can expect a episode from us. Look at me. Look, right. We're going to do an episode every you Monday. Said, you said this last time as well. The and listeners, they they depend on us. Yeah, they deserve regularity. Yes. I, I agree. However, they don't know when we record and and when we put it out. <laughs> I just I'm just saying Telling people that we're uploading on Mondays when there's a small chance that we won't. It's just a risk, okay? No, we will upload every Monday. For me, like, I know that my favorite po- my favorite podcasts, they upload on a certain date, and I wait for those podcasts to come up. So, you okay, know, but maybe, see, maybe we're someone's favorite podcast. Oh, that would be fun. <laughs> no, but I think the, the really interesting thing about what you've just said, though, is that I don't have any podcasts where I'm up to date and I'm waiting for their release. Oh, I've got one or two that I'm like, these are my podcasts. I listen every week and I'm waiting for that new episode to come up. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I want to give that to our listeners. If, if you love us that much, I don't know. I, to- I totally get it. But I think it's just funny because with podcasts, I'm the kind of person that I found like a bunch of podcasts that have been going for like a year or so. And so I have to, I've got a year or so worth of of backlog to get through first. So I don't care what days that they bring them out because I'm not listening to the the recent releases. Although with um, TV, I guess, and some of the web serials that I read, those are released on certain days. So yeah, I get it. So anyways, you're going to hear from us on Mondays. Next week, we'll be talking more about what's coming up now that we're finished recapping season one. Oh, we will be. Sort of. Talking about the future is kind of weird like this. Thank you, dear listener. And until next time, goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.